Thanks, Jimmy, for uh, praying for us in that way and for Simon for leading the first part of our service. It's nice to be able to add to Simon's welcome. It's good to be together. And if you have your Bible, please do open with me uh, to the passage that Jason read for us earlier there from Mark 15, we're in verse 16 down to verse 39. It's going to be really helpful for you to have that in front of you as we look really carefully at it together. The passage that we are in here this morning is an account of the most important and most significant event in the history of the universe. It narrates for us the fulcrum event around which all of history turns. That is the death of Jesus Christ. The whole universe exists for this moment, the death of Christ. This is the moment where God most clearly puts on display the glory of his amazing grace. God does all things for the praise of his glory and especially for the praise of the glory of his grace. So the death of Jesus Christ, we could say, is the point of the universe. In 2 Corinthians 8-9, Paul, speaking of the grace of God in Christ, said this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This morning, we're going to behold together the extent of the poverty the Son passed through, so that we could be made rich. Once again, this account of Jesus' life and death is narrated by Mark, not just to stand as a historical record. Mark's writing everything that he's writing, absolutely yes, to be an accurate historic record of what happened in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we have seen over and over again that Mark doesn't want us just to read this gospel to see historical information so that we'll get all the facts right. He wants us to read every account in his gospel, every portrait of Jesus, in such a way that it will have a, a profoundly shaping impact on our lives. We are to behold here this morning, in the death of Christ, the love and grace of God. And in beholding the love and grace of God in the death of Jesus, we're to be stirred. This passage is here to light a fire under our affections. To make our hearts feel warmed again. To make our hearts burn with a sense of love. And just a, yes Lord, you did this for me. It's to move and stir us deeply. This glimpse of the glory of the grace of God in the death of Christ. So that's the one hope for this message this morning, that beholding the glory of the grace of God on display with Christ on the cross, we will be moved 
And only the Spirit of God can do that moving in our hearts. So let's be praying as we enter the text, even now, Lord, give me sight to see and a mind to understand and light a flame under my heart this morning as I behold this amazing display of your grace. The passage consists of four main events. Mark wants us to slow down and pay particular attention to each of these events. They're like four speed bumps in a road that are designed to slow you down and to take in the grace on display. So here's the map for this morning. We're going to look at the crucifixion, then the cry, then the curtain, and then the confession. Four events that Mark wants us to slow down and pay attention to that we can see the grace of God on display. This is one of those passages this morning where we feel that we should almost take off our, our shoes because the ground we're walking in is so holy. So let's be particularly attentive as we just drink in the word of God this morning. First, Mark records for us the crucifixion of Jesus in verses 16 down to 31. It's almost certain that Mark wants us to see the crucifixion of Jesus in his gospel as a kind of ironic coronation ceremony. Last week, we saw that up to this point in Mark's writing, Jesus has not been referred to in this gospel as a king or the king of the Jews or the king of Israel. But now in chapter 15, in a very short space, six times Mark uses this title for Jesus. He's the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. We see it over and over again. Mark wants us to see in the crucifixion that this is the royal king, the Messiah in his coronation ceremony. Some of you, perhaps here, are old enough to remember the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Sue, I know you will be nodding at this moment as you love the royal family. Some of us may not have seen that, but in our day, we may well live to see the coronation of her son and successor, Prince Charles. In coronation ceremonies, wherever they are, there are usually three main parts to the ceremony. I've been reading through coronation liturgy this week. First, there's an actual coronation, the placing of the crown on the head of the sovereign. Then there is the enthronement, where the newly crowned monarch moves to take their seat in the throne. Third, there is an act of paying homage to the new, newly established and enthroned sovereign. And it's fascinating that all of these elements are present here in Mark's account, but in a very ironic way. In verses 16 to 20, for example, Mark records for us a crowning ceremony where Jesus is crowned, but not with a crown of gold encrusted in jewels. He is crowned with a crown of thorns. 
In verses 21 to 27 then, we see Jesus' enthronement where he proceeds out from the crowning ceremony and is enthroned, but not on a, on a throne of gold and majestic splendor. He is enthroned on a cross with a placard above him, the King of the Jews. And then thirdly, in 28 to 32, where there should be homage paid to the newly enthroned sovereign in its place, Jesus is mocked with real venom. It's almost certain Mark wants us to see this as an ironic enthronement and crowning ceremony. So let's look at each part of those events of the coronation in turn. Verse 16, first of all, we read that the soldiers take him in this coronation, this crowning ceremony. They take him from the place of that horrible public scourging um, at the hands of Pilate, now to the inside of the palace where the soldiers decide to have a bit of fun with this prisoner. We read that they called together the whole battalion of soldiers that were on duty that night. You could imagine one of the Roman soldiers saying, here lads, we've got a king of the Jews on our hands, come on. And they gather around him. It reminds us of the words of the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. And I want you with me this morning to imagine Jesus surrounded, alone, totally outnumbered, terribly exhausted. After a sleepless night and a public flogging, we read in verse 17 that the soldiers decide to play a kind of dress-up game with him. They drape him in a purple robe. They twist together his crown of thorns and they jam it down onto his head. This is a coronation with a difference. They began in verse 18 to sarcastically salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 19, they strike him with a reed, they spit on him, they kneel down in fake honor before him. And we are to see the heart-wrenching irony in this moment. Think about it. They mock the one whose majesty, if it was truly unveiled, would have blinded every one of them and stricken their consciences with fear. They saw, they saw no majesty in this king. But if we slow ourselves down for a moment and have eyes to see it, there is majesty here. Though they don't know it, they are actually fulfilling everything Jesus said had to happen to him when he laid out his royal manifesto back in chapter 10, verse 34. Do you remember how he said, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. There he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll flog him, mock him, spit on him, and kill him. And so you can step back and think for a moment, whoa, even in his hour of deepest humiliation, he was reigning as a sovereign. 
drinking the cup of suffering that he had resolved to drink so that we would never have to taste it. Even in that moment, they were fulfilling his will. Well, after his crowning ceremony, we see next Christ's procession and enthronement in verse 21. Jesus is led out to the place of his crucifixion, a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Outside, it's outside the city walls, but we read that as Jesus is making his way out, he's too, too weak to carry the cross beam as prisoners did in those days. So the Roman soldiers force a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry Jesus' cross for him. And Mark gives us a tantalizing little detail at this point about Simon of Cyrene. He just says he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's an interesting little detail. The way Mark writes it assumes that those who are in his first audience would have known who Alexander and Rufus were. It's written in that way that the people would have been, oh, wow, that's Alexander and Rufus' dad. And what's really interesting is that tradition tells us that Mark was probably writing in Rome. The church in Rome were probably the first readers of this gospel. We know there was a Rufus in the church in Rome because at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, he greets a man called Rufus. Was it the same Rufus? We don't know. But certainly that little detail gives this account a real ring of authenticity. You imagine you're there in the church in Rome, having received Mark's account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and you're reading it, and there's Alexander and Rufus sitting in the congregation, and when he talks about Simon of Cyrene, he says, that was Alexander and Rufus' dad. And you wonder what Alexander and Rufus' story might have been. Yeah, yeah, our dad told us all about that day. It changed our lives forever. We can't speculate too much because we just don't know, but wouldn't it be fascinating to know? But the way Mark puts it is as if the people know who Alexander and Rufus are. It's a lovely little eyewitness ring of authenticity. But as we just chart back in with Jesus moving out towards Golgotha in verse 22, we read that Jesus arrives at the place of his crucifixion. In verse 23, before he's crucified, he's offered a kind of sedative, wine and myrrh, which he refuses so that he can have a clear mind for everything that is before him. And there in verse 24, it's stated so simply, and they crucified him. Mark doesn't linger here. He doesn't focus on the gruesome nature of this means of execution. He just returns to his main goal, helping us to see this is a royal messianic coronation of the king of the Jews. I quoted already Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm, which speaks of the suffering of the anticipated royal messiah. We read in Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Well, here in our passage in verse 24, Mark wants us to see this is being fulfilled in Jesus as the soldiers now do the same to him. They strip Jesus, divide their garments among them, and they cast lots to see who'll get them. 
It shows that the soldiers probably didn't have a big wage. They were probably quite poor. They thought, right, we can get some free clothing. But it also tells us the custom of the day that those who were crucified were totally stripped for this shameful execution. Another custom of the day was to mount a placard over the cross, stating the crime the person had been crucified for. In verse 26, that's how Mark puts it. The charge against him read. Isn't that fascinating? Here was his crime. The king of the Jews. Mark wants us to step back to behold the throne that this world put God's Messiah on. The coronation ceremony closes then the way it opened with mockery. It's another Mark sandwich. Mark and sandwich. The soldiers begin with mock, mockery. Hail, king of the Jews. And then he's crucified. And now at the bottom end, further mocking. Verse 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. The chief priests got stuck in as well. They mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. But you see, at this point, Mark wants us, his readers, to see that it is because Jesus is the true King of Israel that he must stay on the cross. This is what the royal son came from the father to do. This is the climax of the royal vocation of Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said in John's gospel? Father, should I I pray to the father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this hour that I came into the world. And all through the week as I've been preparing this, the words of that hymn, how deep the Father's love for us have just kept coming to mind. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We are to behold the love of God in the enthronement of Jesus Christ upon the cross. In 1 John 4.10 we read, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God put God on the cross. God put God on the throne of grace. That is the cross. And he did that to make us rich. 
And now to make sure we grasp the significance of those riches. Mark points out to us in verses 33 to 39, three further striking things that happened at this moment of Jesus' crucifixion. I said this morning we're going to look at the crucifixion and now the last three speed bumps, the cry, the curtain, and the confession. Three further bumps to just slow us down so that we will get the significance of the event of the crucifixion of Jesus. So let's look at this cry here that we read of in verses 33 and 34. The context of the cry is established there in verse 33 where we read that as Jesus hangs on the cross, darkness falls over the whole land from the sixth hour, that's noon, until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. In the Old Testament, in a few places, God spoke of a day when he would come to bring a final judgment on sin. That day is often spoken of as a day of cosmic darkness. Listen, for example, to the prophet Amos in Amos 8-9. God speaking through him says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. That is some word in the Old Testament, isn't it? About God's judgment falling in a moment of darkness. And here, the darkness that falls on the sun on Calvary portrays the full force of the judgment of God falling on Jesus Christ as he bears the penalty for our sins. Here is Jesus now, our great high priest, standing before a holy God, not with an offering of bulls and goats or lambs, but he comes with the offering of himself. Peter, writing a commentary on this moment, states it so clearly in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's so clear. Here's Jesus taking our cup of wrath that should have been for us and he drinks it down into the deepest parts of his being, swallowing it up and down so that we would never have to taste it. Here is Jesus being made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteous ones, the righteousness of God. And in this moment, as the darkness falls on Christ, at the lowest point of his poverty, he cries out with the loud voice, the words of verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only place in all the gospels where Jesus prays without addressing God as Father. Jesus is using the words of Psalm 22, verse 1, to express the depths of his forsakenness as the sin bearer under the judgment of God. Now there is incredible mystery here. And this is a speed bump we must slow down on for just a moment. What is going on 
in that moment when the Son of God cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First of all, there's a few things that this can't mean. It can't mean that the eternal communion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was broken. It cannot mean that, for God cannot cease to be triune. Jesus still says, my God. It doesn't mean that the Father ceased to love the Son, and it doesn't mean that the Spirit abandoned the Son. We read in Hebrews 9.14, for example, that the Spirit was involved here. For there we read that it was through the eternal Spirit that he offered himself without blemish to God. So though this moment cannot mean that there was some kind of eternal rift among the Trinity, at the same time we have to hold up the realness of the forsakenness. Jesus, the God-man, didn't just feel forsaken. He was in some real, mysterious way forsaken. Rejected by Israel. Rejected by Pilate for political expediency. Abandoned by every single one of his disciples, even Peter. And now, on the cross, experiencing some kind of real distancing from the affection of his father that can be described as forsakenness so that he addresses God in a less intimate way, saying, my God, instead of Abba, Father. You've got to hold up the two. There's some things this can't be, but this is very real. N.T. Wright calls this tension the central mystery and glory of Christianity. It must not be trivialized. We've got to wrestle with it. And we must receive it by faith, even if we cannot fully understand it. Misunderstood by the bystanders who think he's calling on Elijah they didn't see what was going on in that moment. I just want to lift up from the text for a few moments. Just ask, what about you? Have you seen the depths of the poverty that Christ went through in obedience to the Father and for your sake? Remember that opening text from 2 Corinthians 8-9. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. The bystanders at that moment misunderstood it. They didn't see it. Do you see it? Has God opened your mind and so changed your heart to the point where you, you see it. You see the mystery. You see the wonder. You see, you see the astonishment, the solemnity of that moment. And you, like me, cannot fathom the depth of it. And yet you behold it and you say, yes, Lord. 
Well, that's the cry, but let's look now at the curtain. Verse 37, we read that Jesus uttered at this point a loud cry and then breathed his last. Now, John, in John's gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, tells us what that cry was. It was one word, finished. Jesus had absorbed the sin of humanity, of the elect of God and the wrath of God, and he bore it to the point where it satisfied God. God satisfied God. God alone could do it. And again, in some mysterious way, after those hours of darkness, after Christ bore the wrath of God, in some way, it got to the point where he satisfied the judgment of God against the sin of God's people. And at the end of that moment, one word in Greek, tetelestai, it's a wonderful word, it's, it's how do I explain this? It, it could be translated finished or it stands finished. I remember in Greek learning this. It's a perfect tense. I know this will be boring for most of you, but it's exciting for me. It's a perfect tense, which means something that happened in the past, which has ongoing consequences into the future. You often read a perfect tense when, it, when you read, it is written. It stands written. It was written in the past, but it's still written today and has on ongoing consequences. And that's the tense that's used there when Jesus cries from the cross, finished, it stands finished. And I've shared this illustration probably 10 times here before, but I love it. I can't think of a better one, so I'll share it again. It's from my days working in Ulster Bank. And uh, in, indulge me again as I share it. There's some new people who won't have heard it yet, so... I used to uh, work in the bank and um, every now and again you'd have someone coming in with their credit card statement and I'm from Armagh and usually it was a farmer who'd come into some money maybe selling one of his dearly beloved fields and uh, he was paying off his itemized credit card bill whatever it was and in those days I don't know if you still do it these ways now when the person came in and said right there's you know 10 grand to clear my credit card bill I would write on that bill it would be his receipt and I would write on it paid in full. And then I'd get my wee bank stamper out, put it in the, 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 the ink, and then just bang. And every time I did that, I just thought of the gospel. I just thought, paid in full. Stamp. That's what Jesus is doing when he shouts, finished. Paid in full. And if that's not enough, at that moment, we read that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what's that all about? Well, that curtain, while it stood closed, it symbolized the separation between God and man because of sin. That barrier, that curtain, kept sinful people from ever enjoying the goodness of God. And we don't read that it was torn from bottom to top. We read that it was torn from top to bottom, which symbolizes the fact that this was a divine act. God himself echoing the it is finished of the sun, saying, satisfied, access. 
access granted. The old system of the temple as the place where sinners were made worthy to worship was replaced by Jesus, the true temple. The place where man is made right to enter the presence of God. And once again at this point, I just want to lift up my eyes and just ask each of us this morning, do you know that your own debt of sin is paid in full? Because it is the most glorious thing in the world to know that for yourself. Immunized from condemnation. No condemnation now we dread. Well, after the cry and the curtain, finally we get the confession. The passage could end with the torn curtain. But Mark records this one more little detail that happens. He tells us that there was a centurion who had been posted to stand right in front of the cross. So Jesus would have been before him and he was on guard, watching the whole thing. And we read there at the end of our account, in verse 39, that when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now the significance of this moment in Mark's gospel is, it's so significant. <laughs> What's the better way to put that? It's hard to over exaggerate the significance of this moment in Mark's gospel. Remember how Mark started his whole gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then he gave us account after account of the life of Jesus so that we would begin to understand that Jesus is who Mark said he is in the beginning. But all along this past one and a half years, nearly two years in this gospel, we've seen that in account after account of the authority and identity of Jesus being presented, people are missing it. The disciples don't get it. The crowds don't get it. The religious leaders don't get it. There's only two people, two groups, we should put it maybe that way, along the way, who get it. The Father. Do you remember the Father at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved Son at the Transfiguration. This is my Son. Who else gets it? The demons. They understand who he is in this gospel. But no human being in Mark's gospel up to this moment has professed truly and rightly and meant it the right identity of Jesus Christ. Now here, in this centurion, we have the first human in the gospel professing the true identity of Jesus and meaning it. Not a chief priest, not a religious Jew, not even one of Jesus' disciples. Here on the lips of a Roman thug who had been part of the crucifixion team overseeing Jesus' death, we have the confession that is the path of salvation. Think about the power of the symbolic 
moment. The very one overseeing his crucifixion is the one who can on his lips profess the true identity of Christ. The confession, the profession that saves someone. Now we don't know what was going on in the centurion's heart and mind. We don't know if he, what he fully understood in this moment. But certainly Mark wants us to get on this lips. This Roman Gentile is professing this is the son of God. And surely if this Roman thug can profess it, people from other nations can profess it and find hope and life in this moment. Mark wants us to see here that this moment of Jesus' death is revelatory. It reveals Only now are we ready to really get what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. The first part of this passage focused on Jesus, the Christ, the royal Messiah. But now the second part is the Son of God. And it dovetails and brings the whole of the gospel together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the King of the Jews, enthroned on a cross, going to his death. So that the curtain could be torn. We could be reconciled to God. And in that moment of the death of Jesus. See what it is to find life and forgiveness and a home with God. Now we can understand. At this point in the gospel. The kind of son that Jesus is. The son who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. A ransom for many. And Mark wants us to step back. Behold our king. The royal son of God. Who gave himself up for us. Now why did Jesus go through all of that torture? Well this brings us back. To where we started off. For you know. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich. Yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty. Might become rich. Rich. In a state of being forgiven. Rich. In your immunity to condemnation. Richly robed in a robe of righteousness that is not your own. Rich with an incredible inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Incredibly rich. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Rich most of all, because now we get God. You know, in the letter to the Ephesians, over and over again, we read that God has done all of this, even creating a world where he would ordain that there be suffering, so that in such a world, the Son of God could suffer. Suffer the suffering under condemnation that should have been ours, so that the Father can put on display The glory of his grace. That's why I started off saying this event is the center point of the universe. 
the reason behind God ever saying, let there be light. To display the glory of his grace to the recipients of his grace. And we're told over and over again in Ephesians that God does all of this to the praise of the glory of his grace. Specifically in Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, we read that we've been adopted, if we're in Christ, to God himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, unto what? Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. And so I just want to close by asking, are you living in the goodness of that grace? And praising him for the goodness of that grace. God wants us not to live under a cloud of low-level guilt. He wants us to live in the goodness of the finished work of Jesus Christ. To live in the goodness of it. To praise him for the goodness of it. And to find in the immeasurable riches of his grace... A shalom, a peace, a flourishing that nothing else in the universe can give any human being. So do you know your debt is paid? Are you living in the goodness of his grace? And are you ready for the fact that this is not the end of the story? At this point, the darkness that resembled the darkness before the original creation, at this moment, the darkness began to give way. And everything is set up now in this gospel for the dawning of a new creation day with the glorious resurrection. But that's next week. And you're going to have to come back to enjoy it with us. Let's pray. Father, it really is incredible that seeing Christ on the cross enthroned as the king would be the ultimate display of the glory of your grace. And we read in your word that you do all things to the praise of the glory of your grace. And for us to just ponder this morning the cross and the cry and the curtain and the confession. Father, we feel humbled before you and we are thankful. And that confession that was the centurions is still the confession that people are making from every nation around the world today. And I pray that in this moment now, here in our midst and today, as other churches gather across the nations, I just pray, Father, that by the power of the gospel, more and more people would be having their eyes open to see the true nature and identity and accomplishments of Jesus. And for us, Lord, who can forget to be astonished, and become so accustomed to grace, I pray that we would recognize afresh today just how rich we are because of Christ's poverty.
And Father, as we have said, this is not the end of the story because there's another part of Mark's gospel that we're so eager to be in. The glorious resurrection of the Son as he trampled death under his feet, trampled sin, condemnation, and everything else. And because he lives, we can live. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the victory of Christ. Thank you for stirring our hearts this morning. And now, Lord, in view of your mercy, may we offer afresh our whole lives as living sacrifices. May we be transformed by the renewal of our minds that we wouldn't be conformed to the likeness of this world, but instead would be transformed by that renewing of our minds. We rejoice in your grace this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond with those wonderful words. Uh, oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, this hymn that takes us on the journey through the cross to the resurrection to glory. So let's stand and let's lift the lid off and rejoice in the Lord together.
may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.